When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And this episode, we have uh, Kathy Camper. Uh, and uh, I just really enjoy Kathy's uh, work. She's written a few books. She's also a, a librarian, but her books are uh, called uh, Low Riders in Space, Low Riders to the Center of the Earth, Low Riders Blast from the Past, and um, going to be excited to hear about her new book, uh, 10 Ways to Hear Snow, which is going to come out in October. So i um, looking forward to a great conversation with Kathy uh, Camper. Wanted to welcome you to the show, Kathy. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm I'm honored. Thanks so much. Uh, we start off um, with what were you like as 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 a young child? Were you always into books, into art, reading? What were you like? I was. I was. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So um, you'll notice I have a slight Midwestern accent <laughs> that comes out. Um, but um, my, my parents and my family always encouraged reading, and um, I, I loved, you know, the library always seemed like a treasure to go to the public library, so it's not a surprise that I ended up working as a librarian, and um, I, I think that I was lucky that I had parents that encouraged us to draw and to write as, as, as a fun thing, not just as something to do for school. Yeah, that's great to hear. I, I, I thankfully um, talk to a lot of my guests and hear that a lot, a lot of times the, the fuel of their creativity, um, it can be a reaction to authority. But, you know, parents a lot of times help encourage, you know, uh, the, the art. And um, obviously it creates a different dynamic, whether it's whether it's viewed as a spurious activity or something vital, right. like you know. Right. Um, well, I, I agree with you. I was reading something where authors talked about it was a question like, what inspires you to write? And people were saying all these kind of bucolic, happy things. And I thought, actually, I'm often inspired to write because I get angry about something. And and I, I thought it was interesting that people didn't didn't say that because you usually need something that that makes you feel passionately about something that will drive you to to do it, you know. So so I think anger counts, and and it's not always like a bad anger. It's it's something like you read something and you go, wait a second, that that's not right, you know. And then and then you start writing something. Yeah, I think it can be like I know I I operate off a lot of nervous energy. Like I used to question it, but then I realized it's kind of part of my makeup and it kind of pushes me to do things. So, yeah, like whether it's anger or something of the emotions. Yeah. Uh, to 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 create. I ran into your books, Kathy, um Low Riders, which um you know, I enjoy the 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 art in there Raul the 3rd uh, the artist. Um you're writing and um, the kind of uh, Spanish language, uh, English language kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it exactly, a little bit of a pastiche uh, uh-huh. uh, that, that, that you do. Can you tell um, the listeners a bit about uh, Lowriders, uh, the Lowriders series, how it kind of came about and uh, the, sure. the feel I, of it? 
Yeah. I moved to Portland, Oregon to live with my boyfriend in 2005, and I was lucky to get a job here um, to do outreach to schools as a librarian. So one of our functions was to bring books that kids could take, uh, free free books um, during free lunch when they were giving out lunches. So we were outside and we'd spread the books on the grass and kids would take them. And I saw that there was a couple of nonfiction lowrider books that had photographs and facts and and they just got grabbed right away and something started in my head then and it was like this is how often how art starts is like a little daydream and I was like wow that that's cool but there's no no fictional stories no you know and lowriders are so cool and it just kind of uh went around and around in my head for for a while, you know, and and finally I wrote a script and the original script could have been either a picture book or a comic, a graphic novel, because at that time I wasn't really sure which which way it would sell. Um, and um, the the basic idea was that there's a, a contest for lowriders. And I don't know if the listeners know what a lowrider is, but it's a car that's decorated to the max. It's um, something that's come intrinsically from Latinx culture in America originally. And it's either decorated to the max, but then there's also hydraulics that make the car so it can go up and down, um, hydraulics on each tire. So you can literally make the car look like it's dancing. And both those things really fascinated me. And the the fact that the car itself could even move, um, you know, kind of gives it a life that's, that's special. But also, um, there's a lot of ingenuity and creativity, and I love the idea that people um, took what they had and and created this whole culture. Um, I, I love that in in all aspects of art. Um, but but the idea that you don't have to like art doesn't mean that you have oil paints and a brush. It can be all these different factors. And if you're a mechanic, you could also be an artist, or you know. Um, how you drive the car is a kind of art, like thinking about all those things. Um, and then also I was just, when I talked about being angry, I was very, very angry that there weren't books like this for kids that represented kids. The books we had at that time were very suburban and white and we would literally bring them to kids and they wouldn't understand them. Or it was kind of like, why are you giving me this book? Or, you know, asking kids to understand a book like uh, Beverly Cleary book, which is a good book, but it was written in the 1950s and 60s about a United States that no longer exists. And the kids reading it wouldn't necessarily see themselves in it. So, um, and I had already published one kid's book called Bugs Before Time about giant prehistoric bugs. It was a science book. So I knew some stuff about the publishing industry. Um, So, but this was a different time because now there's the internet and publishing had changed radically since 2000 when my bug book came out. And so um, I contacted Raul and we knew each other. He lives in Boston and I live in Portland. And I, I contacted him because I had met him through a third artist that we were both friends with and I really liked his artwork. So I sent him the script and I said, would you be interested in a kid's book? And he's like, show me what you got. And then he wrote right back and said, this is the book I wanted to read as a kid. And he started drawing the characters. Oh, so that's just, fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Just by luck, we had this very kind of a, I want to say a deep connection, although that makes it sound like it's serious. But we had the same sense of humor, the same kind of work ethic, the same um, you know, sort of political sense about what's important. And we were both doing outreach. He was doing teaching classes in art at that time. But we both had a very um, open attitudes towards people and teachers. So, so to have all those things align, I think, you know, is just wonderful. But, but we had no knowledge of that when we first met. Um, So then it was kind of a long process because I started that right when the recession hit around 2008 or whatever. So nobody was buying books. 
And the thing about it is when there's a recession, all they want is, you know, very popular books that will sell. Um, they, they were they wanted illustrators to illustrate fairy tales so they wouldn't have to pay an author, you know, that kind of thing. So we, we tried and we tried to get an agent and we were getting really good rejections like love the story, love the art. Uh, too marginal an audience, you know, and and understand that I was telling them in my letters that by 2050, a third of the country is going to be English Spanish speaking. So, you know, the idea is if you publish this now, you're going to have generations that will grow up with these books. And that's how you get readership for kids books, you know. So but they they didn't want to recognize that. And also, most publishers were in New York City. So Latinx culture, as we know it, pretty much the rest of the country, it doesn't necessarily exist or didn't exist in their viewpoint at that time. So I was kind of racking my brain about how to publish this. And I saw that there was a contest called Pitchapalooza. Um, some uh, husband and wife team called the Book Doctors was coming to Powell's Books, which is a big bookstore in Portland. And it was an opportunity to pitch your book. And I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. I don't know who the judges are. I won't know people in the audience. At least I could test my idea and see how people respond to it. So I went to it and there was about 30 other people there, but it was kind of funny because in my job as a librarian, one of the things I have to do is do book talks to kids. <laughs> so the day, <laughs> the day that I pitched, I'd literally gone to six classes pitching other people's books, you know? So, so in my heart, I was thinking if I can do all these book talks for other people's books, I can do that for mine. So I practiced it and I timed myself, you know, I, I didn't just kind of go in there unprepared. And so I, I did my pitch and I turned out that I won it. And what I hadn't realized was there was actually a prize. And it was that this couple, the book doctors would help, help advance our book. So they, um, they gave us some tips about how to kind of reimagine the, the pitch package. And um, they connected us with Chronicle books. And then we waited and we waited. And then because Chronicle was interested. And then they said, we think Chronicle might make a move. So we'll connect you with your agent. So they did that. And then the agent quickly sent it out to a bunch of other publishers and it turned out that we had some interest, but we ended up going with Chronicle. So, you know, I, I, anybody out there that's interested in writing or illustrating books, there's a mixture of talent and luck and timing, you know. Um, and like um, later people said that our book, if it had come forward like two or three years earlier, it wouldn't have gotten published but the country was just tipping and starting to realize that Latinx culture was growing and was huge. And like now, I think it's much more obvious than, than it was then. Um, and again, you have to realize that everything is money-based and, you know, marketing-based and stuff like that. But um, so that that's kind of our, you know, I'd say our success story. But behind that, like Raul is a super talented artist. And, you know, I have I have tons and tons of manuscripts that have been rejected. So, you know, the the and, and Raul, too. I mean, he's tried tons of things that didn't work out. So so the you know, the pinnacle of the iceberg, the success underneath that. There's like constant trying and rejection and redoing and and stuff like that. Yeah, and and thank you so much for that. I, I'm I'm just uh, I love hearing um, the backstory of that and and also to hear about the, some of the pieces with uh, Raúl the Third um, did the, the, the art on on Low Riders. Uh, I mean, obviously, with you two working, I mean, two very talented people, and uh, just hearing as far as you know. How do you how do you get it done? Right. Because if, you know, if talent got you through, like you said, then then then, you know, you'd be through. Right. But right. Right. It, 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 it takes it takes more than that. Um, 
so, so Kathy, one one question. I got the big question here. Um, what is art? But I wanted you to to um maybe make a couple comments. You know, on on the question, what is art? One of the things you had mentioned about, you know, uh, say low riders and uh, you know some uh, some of the uh, what I would say the aesthetics around the low riders. I mean, sometimes viewed as like kind of like low brow or cars or kind of like popular art. Um, you know, where I view, I mean, I own each, each of those volumes and, and they're fantastic and, and, and beautiful and, and vibrant. Um, for you, I mean, uh, you know, what, what is art and could you kind of maybe look at or, or address aspects of, you know, the, the thinking around like lowbrow art or, or something like that? Well, I think art, like in its basic sense is sort of human expression that that goes beyond perfunctory sort of uh, uh you know so spiritual or emotional um and um i i was watching a show on public television about the invention of writing and they were saying how they think it started basically in mesopotamia from bookkeeping but we would never think of bookkeeping as art but then they, they, then they also looked at Egyptian writing, which was hieroglyphics, where you have the mixture of pictures being sort of turning into letters. And like when we look at hieroglyphics on a wall, we, we would probably think that it's artistic. And, you know, there's calligraphy that is artistic. So I guess there's an element of pleasure in viewing art, although then you could think of art that's not, that's, that's gruesome or something. Um, I, I think it's, but, but there's definitely something about it. And I think it's also been used against art that, you know, it's connection to pleasure or non-usefulness. Um, you know, I mean, you can think of a lot of religious banning of art because it, it is those things, or I can think of uh, when novels first started, the idea that people would just lie around and read novels was considered <laughs> really scandalous. Really yeah, yeah, and, and sort of seductive. Um, and and I think the stuff about lowbrow is it's just a class thing that's overlaid and it switches because, like, if you look at graffiti, at first it would never be in a museum and then suddenly rich people like it and suddenly it's commanding millions of dollars and artists like Banksy, you know, their whole career plays with that sort of that, that valuation. Um, but what, what I think is interesting, especially for kids is that not, not every kid has access to museums and like I said, paints and art history, but, but even with that, um, kids still create art. And like Raul jokes, he'll say that that his museum was the spin rack of comics at the drugstore. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, that's very, very true. Or both of us grew up going to the library and that, um, you know, those weekly visits where you would come home with 20 picture books or something you know, that's like, like an art show in a way. You're seeing this this art pass before you. And so back to the lowrider cars, if you don't have a canvas, but you start painting on an old car and you don't have a brand new car, so you get a junker and you redesign the whole car and maybe all the, you know, you spend all your extra money putting chrome on every single part of the engine and creating like this jewel of a car that's better than any manufactured car. I, I just think that that's really fascinating and, and it shows ingenuity and excitement. And I guess the other thing I should man mention is there's a lot of low rider cars that are filled with humor. Um, so, so what people from the outside might go, Oh, that's, you know, tacky or lowbrow they're not getting the joke that it's supposed to be over the top, you know, like um, one low rider car I saw had like, you know, like, like 15 televisions in, in this one car, like way more than anybody could ever watch. But the idea was, you know, sort of a parody of luxury in a way, like, 
like you're saying, if I buy a TV, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving on up, but like, so then let's buy 20 of them, you know, Um, or, or I, I mean, another thing is even like, sometimes they'll have a rear view mirror, but instead of one, they'll have like five in, in a row, you know, as a decorative effect, but it's also sort of a joke. Um, so, so I really like that, that part of it too. I, um, you know, I know it, we're, I'm interviewing here, and uh, we, of course, we had these wildfires out here in the Pacific Northwest, and it's actually sunny and not raining. Um, you got me dreaming of uh, being in a low rider going down. The road, I know, you know? I know. Cruising with the oldies. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, well, and, and thank you for your for your for your answer there. There's there's a, there's a lot to think about, and uh, I, I definitely appreciate your comments and trying to just build in. You know, I, I find that within popular philosophy or talking about popular art or different forms of art, one of the biggest bullshit pieces of things that I think is just so rampant is 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 the kind of prejudice or the preconceived notions that we have uh, towards, I don't know, whether it's outsider art, whether it's lowbrow, whether it's good, whether it's on the proper medium, whether it's displayed in the right place, I think I like to celebrate not anything that's being done, but folks who are expressing themselves in ways that I think that the viewer needs to open their eye a bit more, not the, you know, the artist is doing their thing. So, um, so, um, uh, uh, Kathy, um, what about the new book, 10 ways to hear snow that it's coming out? What can you, what can you tell us about it? Yeah. Um, so, um, one of the things, um, you know, being an author, I think, uh, just like being a, any kind of artist you'd like, to, to express your voice in different ways. And to me, it's um, one of the most interesting things about doing books for children is that you can work with different artists and people, that collaboration. And with Raul, we had a very close collaboration because we conceived of it together and then brought the product you know, or the books to to find a publisher. But generally, people don't always know this, but in children's books you you're supposed to submit the manuscript and then the editor assigns an illustrator and that that has benefits and that then the editor is um you know kind of like overseeing the project um like like i mentioned raul and i were lucky that we had all these things in common but say that i submit a book with an artist friend and they have a horrible work ethic so then you know, if I can't get them to do the artwork or if they're screwing off, then it can really ruin the, the relationship. So having the editor negotiate that can can be helpful. And I mean, once Raul and I got a, a contract, then the editor did and the art directors, they were working with Raul, too. But um, so my book, Ten Ways to Hear Snow, I, I um, submitted it and it got accepted by Coquila, which is... Um, from Penguin, uh, 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 an imprint of Penguin that represents diverse authors. And um, Kennard Pack is the illustrator, and he's very, um, I guess I'd say, at, not atmospheric, but he's really good at portraying things like seasons and weather. And so it was a good match for the book because the book comes out of my background, which is Arab American, and it's about uh, an Arab American family where a little girl wakes up and there's been a blizzard. And it's that wonderful feeling when you kind of open the curtains and it's like, oh, the whole world has changed because it's covered with snow. And she was going to go make grape leaves. Um, stuffed grape leaves with her grandma, but now she has to walk through the snow to get there. And her grandma is losing her eyesight. So on her walk, the little girl is thinking about all the ways you can hear snow. And so it's a very um, like sense-oriented book, but also sort of um, switching the senses around because you don't usually think of the sounds of snow you think more of the look of snow uh so i was really excited i finally got the um they send you your author's copies and 
it's gorgeous. So um, I'm, I'm very excited about it, but it's a whole different audience, a whole different mood. Um, it's, it's more for four to eight-year-olds, which um, low riders is a little older, like um, probably, you know, eight to 12 and up to adult. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm excited to see how this, this book does. Yeah, I'm very. I mean, it is 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 a, a beautiful title, and obviously, you know, evokes you know the the thought there. Um, and you being from Madison, in you know, speaking about snow, I'd remember. This, I'd imagine there's some connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Well, to, and also, I think an important thing about the book I was talking to someone is um, the idea that grandparents can can share with grandkids a food that that has meaning to your family and your culture. Like, I think that's such an exciting um, way for for your family to kind of pass on its its heritage, I guess you'd say. Um, and, and I was thinking, you know, I'm talking about my Arab American background, but but probably all your listeners can think of something that they've done that's similar like that. I mean, it might not be with food, but food is a common one where there's some food in your family that, that you know, you share and maybe not with grandparents, maybe other relatives where you can teach kids and then kids grow up and they're like, I know how to do this because, you know, my grandma or my mom taught me this. And I know now I'm old enough, like my grandma's been dead for years, but, but it kind of gives me chills sometimes when I make some of these recipes because they've been passed down that way from other people, you know. Um, and, I, and I also think it's not a religious book at all, but it's a great book for winter and the holidays because the snow is just, um, like I said, that, that, that sort of wonderful muffling that you get when, that, when you wake up and there's that big snow and everything has changed. Yeah, it's that the distinct. It's like the distinct. It's soft sound, but it's loud because it sounds so different. It's right, it's right. It's like I notice it a lot. The sound of what's out there, even though it there seems to be less sound, it's just muffled. So yeah, um, yeah. Uh, well, I'm really, really glad to hear about that book, and you know, for you to be able to um, get that out there. I look forward to that. Um, when's the release date on the book? Um, it comes out October 13th, so that's that means that's when it'll be in stores. But you can pre-order it. You know, I'm telling people, support your local indie bookstores for sure. Like, of course, you can get it on Amazon. But if you have a bookstore that allows you to order books, you know, support them because we need them. And, and um, I know that, that Amazon you know, it kills local businesses and we need them because with the quarantine, they're, they're struggling double. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and, and thank you for that. Yeah. That's 10 ways to, to hear snow. Um, Kathy, I have a, a, a another question, um, that I wondered, uh, if you could kind of give some comment on, um, just with the, the, the various, you know, uh, folks talk about 2020 and the, and the challenges or the disruptions and changes, revelations in society, disease, whatever the combination of things are. I mean, uh, with the pandemic, um, uh, hopefully growing awareness about the the the, the deep, violent, uh, racist history uh, of the United States. Um, a lot of a lot of a lot of these tensions being worked out um, significantly this year. What what role, uh, say you, but in the roles that you play as a author, artist, librarian, do, do you feel that the present state of things have, have, have caused a greater import to the, the work that you do or the art that you create? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I think I would always do this kind of work and looking back on my history, you know, like even in high school, I was working on some, um, you know, like zines and underground papers and stuff like that. So, so, I mean, I think that's just my nature and I kind of go back and forth, Ken, because part of me feels like, you know, obviously it's very 
different times and and we're feeling you wake up every day and you feel like what's the new thing that's you know going to make me feel totally freaked out and stressed i mean it's very anxious times very threatening times but i think we've been through this before like the 60s were were very similar in ways and i think that in some ways the united states has been privileged not to have this kind of fear because like we've never had um a, a war fought like from somebody attacking us on the outside and then fighting that on our own turf you know we've always had things sort of at a distance except for the civil war um recently and and i think that um so you know or, or even disease so many other countries live with daily fears of disease um and with very little resources to to cure it or to solve it so i i kind of go back and forth about that you know like like maybe this is a just us waking up to to you know what a lot of the rest of the world experiences daily and and of course being lebanese american and looking what happened in beirut you know like that huge explosion on top of everything else collapsing the bank system reliable government reliable transportation you know um and still people survive and and i also think that at times of great change you know part of the um like like it's a reaction to a lot of change rather than like like what we're seeing it's not it's not all negative like a lot of it is because there's been huge amounts of change in the past 5 or 10 years you know um I mean, I, I didn't ever expect to see a black president in my lifetime, and and that I did, I think that's amazing. But it also is showing that there's a lot of backlash to that. So, sure. Sure. Um, you know, or I think I think what we're going through right now in the definition of gender, like like that, it might not. Um, be binary as as we've been locked into the definition of gender for so long. I mean that's that's a huge change. So it's going to uh, uh, you know create a lot of reaction, but it also, you know, we haven't had this discussion this upfront before. So so that that also means, you know, that that there's a movement or I also look at just you know that the statistics that the US won't continue to be white majority again that's going to cause a backlash but but inevitably that's going to roll forward and i in the last census they said the biggest growing ethnicity was multicultural or multi ethnicities so how kids of the future will identify is going to be different than it is today and that's one thing i think cuz i write for kids it's like the cutting edge of what's going to be the future is also you know who's kids now what are kids now like so uh, some of the stuff that we're seeing in some ways it may be the last gasp of some people that won't be here you know 10 or 20 years from now and yeah. i mean you know one way to think of that is is how would have people in the say the 40s or the 30s ever conceived of the internet and how it's affected all our lives you know so um i think there's some profound change and i think i think you're right i mean sometimes you have to step back in place you know over the last 5 or 10 years some of the things that happened you know i've been deeply uh, fascinated by what pieces have opened up both intellectually and culturally in the United States um uh, but I I'm reminded daily as a 48 uh year old cis white male that my reaction is not the standard reaction uh to those changes I'm intellectually curious that doesn't place me in a higher position than anybody but I'm curious about the changes and I want to understand what language around gender is right and learn more about um race and ethnicity in in the United States but the reaction to my 
of my prototype is very different is quite simply a vote for Trump and a middle finger to the rest of the country. Um, And I think, you know, uh, there's great potential in a lot of the dynamics that you describe historically that are happened. But um, the challenge that those changes create and the kind of political reaction to them is uh, just downright scary. Uh, right, right. That, that I've seen inspiring, inspiring, <laughs> because I believe that people are going to win at the end of the day, at the end of history. But that's that's a very abstract notion at the moment. <laughs> well, and I think in a larger picture, I mean, I mentioned I wrote a book, Bugs Before Time. So that was about the like the sort of the evolution of insects and kind of paralleling the dinosaurs and, you know, the history of of life, really. And and. One of the things I like, I always love geology and fossil hunting and stuff. And one of the reasons I like it is it puts in perspective. I mean, the dinosaurs were here for millions of years. They were way more successful than humans. And um, there's been several times in geological history where humans have almost been wiped out, like greatly reduced. And there's been many times when life itself has been reduced and then you know come back and and bubbled as one cell or you know very primitive kinds of life and then gradually re re evolved and like i was reading about the when the asteroid hit that killed the dinosaurs and one of the things they think now is not i mean it was a huge explosion down near the caribbean so you know if you think of this huge crater of something hitting, but they said it pulverized so much earth that then that blackened the skies and caused immediate winter. And then there was like a rain of sulfuric acid, you know, and I was reading this and I'm going like, it sounds like something, you know, like the biblical end of the world, but that's, that's like, that's like nature, you know, that that's not anything that humans did. It's like, you know, the way of the, the, it's not even the way of the world, but the way of the cosmos is we could be hit by, you know, this falling chunk of something and it just ends everything that makes sense to us. (laughs) And, and, you know, sort of that, that, that we live in a chaotic universe that, that doesn't, it doesn't align with our, you know, all the things in our brain that say this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad. And, you know, a lot of art and religion and philosophy, it's all trying to make some kind of sense out of that huge chaos. (laughs) And so sometimes seeing that chaos, it's almost in a weird way, reassuring, <laughs> like it doesn't even matter what we do in a certain amount of, of things that, I mean, that doesn't mean we should ruin the earth or kill people, but it, it also means that, um, you know, it's not all, all our control that, that, you know, there's, there's a way of things that's bigger than we can grasp kind of. Yeah, we can't like necessarily control the ending. There's a lot of control that question, right? Control the ending, control what's what's going to happen. I think yeah. my my solution is a little bit simpler. As of October 13th, having a copy of Ten Ways to Hear Snow, <laughs> I think that can provide yeah. some solace. I've spent 12 years in uh, 12 years in uh, Milwaukee and uh, Madison, Wisconsin, myself, and know that. The peaceful sound of the snow and maybe not the 15 inches that creates <laughs> havoc, you know. Well, and you know, when you're a kid, you don't have to drive. You don't have to <laughs> go to a job. You, you know, school's canceled. It's just kind of a wonderful, um, like, wow, snow. And um, I hope when you see it, like I worked with them originally, the drawings looked much more East Coast. And I said, no, the, um there's big Arab populations in like Dearborn, Michigan and Detroit. So I I really wanted it. And then my background in the Midwest, I wanted it to look like a Midwestern city because again, there's sort of a hidden prejudice with New York publishers. Everything sort of ends up being more about New York (laughs) and it's like, but there's all the rest of the country. Yeah. Otherwise everything's going to be a a brownstone, right? (laughs) Like that. Right. 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 And in the library, we've seen that uh, one of the examples we saw that was kind of disturbing a while back, we were looking, somebody wanted to know like the best um, 200 
picture books that showed black kids. So we, you know, when we're a big urban library, so we got put everything on hold and was looking through. And it was like one brownstone after the other. And it started to get really upsetting because we couldn't find any books about black kids on the West Coast or black kids in Detroit or St. Louis or Chicago or Kansas City, where there are huge um, black populations and, and a very important black culture. So this was, you know, it wasn't that all the publishers in New York said, okay, only show this, but it showed their hidden subconscious prejudices about what they thought you know, how a black family should be represented, which was a brownstone in New York, you know. Um, so so some of those things, like there's up upfront prejudices, but then there's ones that we've absorbed that we don't even realize it. And so, um, and I can say something, even my book showing an Arab family in snow is, <laughs> again, it's breaking a stereotype because almost every other book, you're going to see Arabs in the desert, Arabs in camels, even though, like I said, Dearborn, Michigan is where in America, where there's, you know, the heart of Arab population. So in, in Michigan winters. Right, right. And, you know. Um, you know, in other places, Ohio and Brooklyn. And I mean, there's there's Arabs that live in California and, you know, warm places, too. But just um, it's so easy from the, the, the media, the inundation of the media to have these stereotypes formed that, that we don't even realize. Um, and then when somebody says that, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm going to I'm going to. And, and I those those details and some of the things I never really thought about of, of of setting not only like who the characters are in the book but the 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 physical setting and how it appears. Um, you know, I think it really appoints to you know I would say you know your work as a librarian, seeing a lot of books, seeing how things are represented, seeing what words are used, seeing what colors are there, seeing what cities. I, I think those are the type of details that. When um, people, uh, whoever they are, see themselves in, you know, that whole thing of settings that that look familiar to them, that their teacher looks, you know, maybe like their uncle or, you know, or like there's a a connection to the reality that's being expressed in culture that reflects. Well, um, or or even things like like class, like seeing working class families. And it often, to me, it doesn't hit me until I read a book um, that, you know, where, where I see something and I go, wow, I really connect to that. And then I realize it's partly because I never saw myself in the book in that way. And, you know, I know um, I'm fairly light skinned, but, but growing up in Wisconsin where people were very blonde, I, you know, it's like if there was ever a character that had dark hair or darker skin, that's the one that I connected to as a kid. And um, so it's very subtle how that can happen. But, um, you know, being showing kids more different worlds and, and then the opposite is that books are a good way to explore things that we don't know about. So, you know, whoever you are, you can also learn about a lot of other different kinds of people just by reading a book. And it's also a very safe way to explore stuff, you know, and then, and then in your real life, maybe you go out and do more exploring, you know, but just like you read a travel book before you go travel, you can read books about anything, any culture, you know, all different, you know, levels of fantasy and things like that. And then, and then kind of say, is that for me or not? You know, and I think that's a super important part of kids growing up to be able to do that. Yeah. And um, thank you for your contributions to it. Like, like I said, um, you know, both in, in the work you do and the kind of historical importance of, of librarians. Um, uh, but also, like I said, um, you know, um, you know, creating material that that, you know, will reach kids. And I think both of us know that within the capitalist market. Right. I mean, things that fit into what already exists move along pretty well because they mesh with the culture and those that stick out or cause pause or don't reach a demographic readily. It takes work. And I've heard that, you know, uh, about the work you've done to make sure that um, that gets out there. 
Um, I got one. I got a. I got a question I wanted to ask you before the the big. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? But prior to that, given you know your round books, um, love them. Uh, any like super important authors that you've encountered lately that you'd want listeners to be like check this out because this is really cool. Oh, <laughs> never ask a librarian that because I feel like when when I get asked that there's so much, but then I can't think of any titles. But I wanted to give a shout out for my author friend, Isabel Quintero. Um, she is a writer and she also published a picture book called Me Papi Has a Motorcycle, I think. I might be saying it slightly wrong, but um, it's with the, with the same publisher I have, Coquila, but it's about a little Latinx girl whose dad is um, a carpenter, and he gives her a ride on the back of his motorcycle. And when I read that, um, I had that experience we were talking about where I was like, oh, I remember those days when, you know, I got to hang out with my dad just alone. And for me and Madison, what I remember is one time he rented a rowboat down by the Union at the lake um, on the, the college campus. And and I got to go, you know, he rowed out into the lake. And as a little girl, I was sitting there and I got to go for this rowboat ride with my dad. And reading her book just brought that back so vividly. But she does this wonderful father-daughter connection. But, but showing a working-class dad that way and he drives around and he's waving at some of the carpenter guys he knows and um it just you know it it showed me a bunch of things that i hadn't seen in kids books before and it's a it's a wonderful book thank you yeah my poppy me has pop, a motorcycle or my poppy has a motorcycle yeah, my yeah. poppy has a motorcycle um yeah thank you so much for that i um i i, I tend to do that uh like I get librarians around. I I extract as much as I can from them. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. And then I feel like, like I said, I have a horrible memory. So I I'm always like, oh. And then there was that book that kind of blah blah blah. But I can't remember the exact title and the author. But um... no, I'm 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 the exact I'm the exact same way. And when you know the the, the episode comes out, maybe we can. Uh, you know, throw a few little extra tags on there and, you know, you can think about it a little bit more. But the big question, name of the podcast, Kathy Camper, I know you have an answer for why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure there is something rather than nothing. That's okay. That is an answer. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that um, I... I, I guess it goes back to what I was saying. I feel like things have evolved this way, but, but it kind of tickles me that it's totally random and that, you know, there could be like, like say the asteroid hits and we all die and there's some other kind of evolution, you know, it could be intelligent cockroaches or it could be um, slime mold or it could be nothing like on, on Venus where there's a toxic atmosphere, you know, that, that, that that's all, um, but something rather than nothing, I'm not, I'm not really sure. No, we're all every, every, you know, every every episode, you know, we're all taking stabs at it. <laughs> we're all taking stabs at it. Yeah, I mean, I guess like as a kid, I always was frustrated by that. Like, you know, when you read physics and it it's like talking about the end of the universe. I mean, if you think of the universe kind of like as a table. Or, or, or anything, you know, at some point you reach the end, but, but they say, you know, when they say there is no end or that it goes on forever, I'm like, well, that, that I can't conceive of that really. So I, you know, I don't know, or, or like, like when they, some, some theories that think that we're somebody's daydream in another universe or something, you know, um, uh, like multiverses in yeah, or that whole thing that there's infinite amount of universes then it's like, well, how does that all fit? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like, like, because then there seems like there's a space that it fits in. So that space goes beyond. I don't know. <laughs> well, I know. And, 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 but, well, well you know, in, I'm going to, I'm going to make, make, and thank you for, for, for your answer because 
I, I get it too, but I'll make it easier. The last one in this particular multiverse that we're in, <laughs> how do, uh, how do, how do listeners, um, how do listeners connect to to you, your work? Um, what what where do, where do they go? Just to make sure they connect with. Oh, uh, thank you. Great well, probably you just you know if you search on the internet, kathycamper.com, I have a website. So that's you know if you wanted to contact me, you could do it through that. Or um, you know I I try to keep it updated. Um, I'm on social media, definitely Facebook, a little bit Twitter, a little bit Instagram, and that's just because I don't really feel super healthy being on social media a whole lot. Um, I'd rather be out wandering around outside somewhere. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. And, you know, I'm, I'm open for doing school visits or, um, you know, if you have a book festival and need an author, I'd love to show up. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, and, uh, Kathy, Kathy Camper, um, I got to tell you, it's it's been so nice um, to to talk to you and actually to you know uh, learn more about you know about your work and about about your art. Um, I, I really think it's great, the, not only what you make, but in talking to you about your process and how you're thinking about it, the what you're trying to do and what you're trying to create. Um, whether it's for kids, for adults, uh, for young adults, what have you. Um, I just wanted to thank you for the things that you create and to uh, thank you for, for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, there's nothing that touches me more to like sometimes people have emailed me or written me and kids. And, you know, when I think of something that to me, like a book is like my daydream, but then when they say like, you move me, you changed my life, or, you know, I saw myself in your books or something like that. It's just, it's like, wow, you know, I'm just humbled by that because like I say, it's, it's sort of like it starts all as a daydream. So it's pretty but cool. Now I just get a, now I just get to find somebody who's got a low rider down in the area. <laughs> I know. It's nice outside. We walk around nice outside, but, um, uh, yeah, thank you again. Uh, Kathy Camper, uh, Lowriders from Space, and the the new book, um, coming out 10 Ways to Hear Snow, um, and that's going to be October 13th. Uh, Kathy, again, great pleasure uh, chatting with you, and hope to chat again soon. Yes, thank you. Bye now. You are listening to something rather than nothing.